Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Thank you for returning for part three of my Christmas podcast series. In our previous podcasts, we've taken a look at why we celebrate Christ's birth on December 25th. Even though most likely he was born either in the spring or the fall. We considered why we sing Christmas carols and why we typically have three wise men included in our nativity scene, even though there were very likely many more magi that traveled to see the Christ child. We learned that the Bible does not in fact name these men, nor does it tell us who they were or where they were from. But we do learn from Matthew that they traveled by following a star and they rejoiced when they came to the place where the star rested above the house where the Christ child was. We also posed the question of why these astrologers were so willing to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to see this new king. And yet the scribes, the Pharisees, and even King Herod himself, who all resided about six miles away in Jerusalem, were not inclined to check out this prophecy for themselves. We also pondered the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, we read that God chose humble shepherds and not the religious elite or the wealthy or the socially connected to share his news with first. The shepherds were present the night of Christ's birth, not the Magi. The Magi most likely did not appear until some time later, months, maybe even one or two years after Jesus was born. Now in today's podcast, we're going to investigate the latest information on what type of structure the baby Jesus was most likely born in. We'll discuss in more detail the reaction of King Herod to the news of this new King of the Jews in Bethlehem. And we'll talk about the Holy Family's trip to Egypt. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about the year of Christ's birth. How did this very important date get so messed up? Well, First, did you know that the calendar that we use is not the same calendar that the Jews use? Okay, a little background. The Hebrew calendar is what is called a lunar solar calendar. And that means that their calendar keeps in sync with the cycle of both the sun and the moon. It's designed to satisfy a number of requirements in the Jewish Holy Scripture. The Hebrew calendar, <laughs> quite honestly, it's an imprecise system in terms of reflecting the duration of our solar year. You know, that's the amount of time it takes the Earth to complete a full orbit around the sun. Because a year in the Hebrew calendar, it can be 
353, 354, 355, 383, 384, or 385 days long. Now, these alterations are designed to prevent Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, which is the day that their new calendar would start, and other holidays from falling on certain days of the week. So according to Hebrew time, we are now in the sixth millennium. The Hebrew calendar actually starts in 3761, what they call BCE, before Common Era. And this was based on a 12th century Jewish philosopher, and his name was Maimonides. And he established the biblical date of creation to be 3761 BCE. So right now in 2020, in the Hebrew calendar, we are in year 5,780 instead of 2020, 5780. And they say AM, which means Anno Mundi, literally the year of the world. So clearly we don't use that calendar. We use a Christian calendar. And this was developed by a guy named Dionysus, who was an Eastern Orthodox monk, 500 AD. He had the best of intentions. He wanted Christ's birth to be at the center of our calendar. And he's actually quoted as saying that he wished to date the year from the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's his birth when he came to earth in the form of a man. In order that the beginning of our hope should be better known to us and the cause of our recovery that is the passion of our Redeemer, should shine forth more clearly, unquote. So what Dionysus did was he renumbered the years beginning with what he thought was the birth of Jesus Christ, beginning with year one, because the Roman numbering system had no way to indicate a zero. So that's honestly why we go from 1 BC, before Christ, to 1 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Well, the problem was, in 500 AD, he didn't have all the information, and he didn't know that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And this bit of information was critical. Why? Well, because Herod was alive when Jesus was born. Therefore, Jesus couldn't be born in 1 AD. Do you see? Remember, we read last week that the Magi, those astrologers, they visited King Herod and told him of the star that they were following. And then Herod, we're going to talk about today, orders the slaughtering of the innocents ages two and under to try to eliminate any kingly infant boy. Therefore, we now believe that Jesus most likely was born between 6 and 5 BC because of that 
two year span of time that Herod says that he wants to cover all his bases. Now, isn't that interesting? I hope that clears up the mystery a little bit for you. But, you know, at this point, we've just decided to keep our calendar as it is. Can you even imagine if we tried to change it now? And most of the world uses this Gregorian calendar. But some of the world, and you may see this in writing, instead of writing BC, they will write BCE, before Common Era. And right now, instead of writing AD, they'll write CE, which means Common Era. That way they keep Christ out of it. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Do you have a favorite Christmas movie? Well, (laughs) chances are it has nothing to do with the baby Jesus, right? This time of year, we are bombarded by many different versions of the Christmas story on TV, through animation, and even in our church pageants. I honestly have fond memories of both of my boys being dressed as angels for a Christmas pageant, complete with those feathery wings secured with safety pins and coat hanger halos. I'm certain there was some bribery involved to get them to do that. Oh, and let's not forget the various plastic baby Jesuses. And after years of use, some of them looked pretty darn sad. There were always donkeys and children dressed as sheep. And oh, yes, the coveted outfit of the wise men or the wise women. I know I cast a few females in that role once or twice. But I have to tell you, the best manger I have ever seen was in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. There, in this beautiful midtown Manhattan church, is a manger with, drumroll please, a golden retriever. I'm not kidding. I actually have a picture of it on my website, (laughs) studentofthebible.com. I remember my husband and I kept going back and looking at it to make sure we were seeing it correctly. Yeah, it's a golden. Now, don't get me wrong. Goldens are absolutely my favorite dog. But also make no mistake, this definitely is not biblically correct. We seem to have some very interesting ideas of what the scene when Jesus was born actually looked like. You've probably heard the theories. Jesus was born in a cave. No, no, he was born in a barn. Wait, he was born in a manger, way out in the middle of nowhere. Well, based on recent archaeological findings, these all are most likely incorrect. When we read, for example, that there was to be a census, we know from Luke's account that Joseph took Mary to Bethlehem because he belonged to the house and the line of David. But nowhere does it say that Joseph waited until the last possible moment and that a very pregnant Mary had to make this 80-mile trek on the back of a donkey. This is what Luke actually says in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them, unquote. Your translation may say, no room for him in the inn, but a better translation is no guest room. Now, inn kind of implies a Motel 6 or a Holiday Inn, of which there were none. Think about it. Since Joseph's family was from Bethlehem, which is why he is traveling there for the census, doesn't it seem likely that he would be staying with his relatives? That's what you did back then. Bethlehem was a very small town. No room at the inn has now been interpreted by many scholars to mean no private area to give birth. Homes in those days were made of adobe and hewn stone, and they were typically two-story. The kitchen and a room for the animals would be on the main floor. And then the upper room was usually an open room for sleeping. And then on warm summer nights, many would actually retire to the roof to sleep. It seems most likely that when it came time for Mary to give birth, Mary and Joseph went downstairs to the room with the animals for some privacy. And it would also be nice and warm. Okay, does that mean you need to change your manger? (laughs) It may mean some renovations. Add on a kitchen and an upstairs. Wouldn't that be a conversation piece? Okay, and while you're making these changes, recall from last week's podcast, your manger should not have the wise men next to it. They've been banished to another room. They weren't there when Jesus was born. Okay. So now, maybe you have a better idea of what the accommodations may have looked like. We also recall that by the time the Magi from the East arrived, Mary and Joseph and Jesus no longer lived in this manger, but they're now in a house, and Jesus is no longer a newborn baby. Let's look at what happens in our story when the Gospel writer Matthew tells us that the Magi don't return to King Herod after visiting Jesus. Remember that Matthew told us that King Herod feigned sincerity when he said to the Magi, quote, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him, unquote. Hmm. Yeah, sure. We learn from the Gospel of Matthew that after the astrologers, the Magi, saw the child. They were overjoyed and bowed down and worshiped him. And then Matthew in chapter 2 verse 12 says, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, unquote. And that's all we learn about the Magi. But let's return to King Herod and the Holy Family. Matthew says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. When they had gone, and he's referring to the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. 
take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son, unquote. So how long were Mary and Joseph and Jesus in Egypt? The Gospel of Matthew tells us that, quote, after Herod died. So we know that was 4 B.C., An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Historical records say Herod died in 4 BC. So, Depending on when Jesus was born and when the astrologers came to him to honor him, the journey to Egypt lasted no more than two years and maybe was a shorter period of time, according to most biblical scholars. Where in Egypt did they live? Well, no one knows for sure based on the information provided in the Bible. But there is a belief among the Egyptian Coptic Orthodox Church that when they arrived in Egypt, the Holy Family changed locations really frequently so as to avoid the reach of Herod's spies. And they believe that in total, there's 26 locations in the country where it's believed that they either passed through or sought refuge. And many of the Egyptians also believe they were there for three and a half years. And so as you would expect, there are tours available so you can visit these sites. But again, just based on the information in the Bible, no specifics are mentioned on where or how long they stayed in Egypt. But you might ask, for however long they were there, how did Mary and Joseph and Jesus survive in this foreign land? Ah, Well, many biblical scholars have noted that those really valuable gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that the Magi gave the Holy Family, well, that most likely would have paid for their travel and have taken care of them financially during their time in hiding. Isn't that cool? Matthew in his gospel tells us Herod was not happy that the Magi didn't return to him. Matthew Chapter 2, verse 16 says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, unquote. If you've listened to some of my other podcasts, You might recall that Herod the Great was a great architect, but he was a horrible and paranoid person. It's recorded that he killed a lot of people during his reign, including family members. 
In fact, many have diagnosed him as being a paranoid schizophrenic, which isn't really a stretch when you consider that in addition to eliminating most of the Hasmoneans, Herod drowned his own brother-in-law because he was afraid the Romans would favor him instead of Herod, and he had his mother-in-law executed. He killed his beloved second wife. Oh yeah, and this one, I don't know if you remember the lesson where he preserves her in honey and then has her laid in a glass tomb so that he can look at her. And then history says that he set up a spy network to spy on his own people. And he had three of his own sons killed. And historical records show that, especially during the last four years of his life, he executed 300 of his own military leaders and a number of Pharisees because they predicted that Herod's throne would be taken from him by God's decree. Interesting. So it seems that Herod probably was at a breaking point when the Magi came to him and said, yeah, we want to go see this new king of the Jews. He literally must have been beside himself. And the Bible tells us that he calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law to really get some clarification. And they agreed. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel, unquote. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law, of course, knew about this Micah chapter 5, verse 2 prophecy, and they knew about a lot of the other prophecies about the Messiah, and Herod knew this too. His counselors would have been advising him that the Jews are expecting a great military leader and a political deliverer any time now. Israel hadn't had a prophet in 400 years, so the people were waiting expectantly. So, based on Herod's extreme paranoia, it really is a little surprise that he would think nothing of wanting to eliminate all male children to and under just to cover all his bases in getting rid of his competition. So while Jesus and his family were safely away in Egypt, we have a sorrowful fulfillment of what the prophet Jeremiah predicted 600 years earlier. This is in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Unquote. So many prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the prophecy of Jesus and his family going to Egypt, the prophecy of this awful slaughtering of the innocents, and then there's a prophecy of Jesus not returning to Bethlehem, but going to Nazareth once the family left Egypt. 
it seems from Matthew's Bible account that Joseph actually may have intended to return to Bethlehem with his young family. But Matthew tells us in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, that this is what happened. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he, meaning Jesus, would be called a Nazarene, unquote. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of his birth, and he grows up in Nazareth and Galilee to also fulfill the prophets. Let's review what we learned. We learned our calendar was developed by a well-intentioned yet misinformed monk in 500 AD. We learned that we probably all need to greatly modify our mangers if we want to be historically accurate. We learned that the Holy Family spent some time in Egypt before being alerted in a dream that it was safe to return to Israel and specifically to return to Nazareth, which is where Jesus is going to grow up. We have learned that so many prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus being born in the city of David, Bethlehem, going to Egypt, the slaughtering of the baby boys, Jesus and his family going to Nazareth. As we have studied the story of Christ's birth over these past few weeks, perhaps what should stand out the most to us is that God sending his own son brought much joy and also much concern. Joy to the lost, the marginalized, the least. Joy to the pagan astrologers who knew he was the true king of the Jews. Joy to the lowly shepherds. Joy to Simeon. Now, he's an old man who was waiting for the arrival of Christ so that he could die in peace. This happened during baby Jesus's consecration in the temple. And Luke tells us this story in chapter 2 verses 28 through 35, and it's just a beautiful story. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too, unquote. And then Luke tells us that that same day when Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus are in the temple, that there's this old woman named Anna, who is a prophetess, and she never leaves the temple. She worships there day and night, fasting and praying. And Luke said that she came up to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and gave thanks. What I love about this story that Luke includes is that both Simeon and Anna were apparently very old, yet they never lost hope that they would live to see the Messiah, the Savior, the Emmanuel. The Holy Spirit led them to be present to witness the baby Jesus. This past Sunday, we just lit our third Advent candle, which represented joy. Do you have joy in your heart as you anticipate Christ's return? Sadly, we live in a world where some are like Herod and feel threatened by the celebration of Christ's birth and his imminent return. But we need to be like the humble shepherds. We have been blessed with this good news. Who can you share the good news with? May the joy of Emmanuel, God with us, sustain you through good times and bad. And may you have a blessed rest of 2020 by being a blessing to others. I leave you with this prayer from our Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a blessed day.